Yeah, they came on five. No, o'clock I didn't. In fact, I forgot all about that. But, hey, Mabel, um, did he make you late today? Always. It's always his fault. Okay, we got to get started here. We got people on. That's all right. Um, Psalm 11981. Yeah. Um, cough. Bend open time. Open palm. My soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. My eyes fail. <laughs> Funny. Looking for your promise. I say, when will you comfort me? Though I am like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your decrees. How long must your servant wait? When will you punish my persecutors? The arrogant dig pitfalls for me, contrary to your law. All, all your commands are trustworthy. Help me, for men persecute me without cease. They all, almost wipe me from the earth, mm. but I have not forsaken your precepts. Preserve my life according to your love, and I will obey the statutes of your mouth. Nice. <laughs> okay, I have some. Um, I wonder, is that me? Yes, it was. Oh, yeah, it was. Okay, that's just notifying us that the live stream is live. Okay, um, I, I have all kinds of prayer requests, and I think they're older. I've just been so busy this week. I've been so busy this week. I apologize if somebody emailed me and asked for a Bible, a prayer. I have been praying when they come in, but I, I don't know what I wrote down this week and what's from last week. But I do have one for. Jeff and Nanette, they lost both parents just this week. Uh, it kind of tragic circumstances, one after another. And uh, so we certainly want to lift up Jeff and Nanette there. Um, and I know I got some other emails that I've not read because it's just been an unbelievably busy week. But um, those are our prayer requests for today. And then uh, we'll go ahead and read this day in Christian history. Today is what day? It's the 23rd, 23rd, 24th. February 24th. Let's see what this says. They took the road less traveled and more dangerous. Michael Sattler was a Catholic priest in southern Germany in the 1520s, and Margaretha had a lay position in the Catholic Church, boldly breaking their vows of celibacy to marry. They were one of one mind regarding their faith in God and their love for each other. <laughs> As if this wasn't scandal enough, their convictions led them to join the Anabaptists, a fledgling religious movement the ecclesiastical and magisterial powers deemed dangerous. The Anabaptists believed that obedience to God was primary and obedience to the state was secondary. Sounds like Acts chapter 5. And this view attracted the settlers, and they also committed to the group's principle of seeking careful counsel of fellow believers before acting. Adult baptism and strict pacifism also attracted the settlers. These views were considered extreme at the time, but Michael and Margaretha consistently made choices against the norm. When Michael became an Anabaptist leader, he saw a great need for structure within the movement, which was full of life and spirit, but lacked, but lacked direction and organization. It needed written guidelines in order to preserve freedom, set boundaries, and protect themselves against fanatics who might be led it, who might lead the group astray. On February 24th, 1527, in Schleitheim, Germany, 
Michael Sattler brought together a small group of Anabaptist leaders who wrote and adopted seven articles of faith which they called the Brotherly Union. They now had an organized church. Michael went to Rottenburg where officials seized the Brotherly Union papers as well as other Anabaptist plans. Nineteen people, including Michael and Margarita, were arrested and tried for violating Catholic doctrine and practice such as baptism, the Eucharist, unction, and veneration of the saints. Michael was also charged with leaving his monastery, marrying, and promoting a pacifist approach toward the Turks. In court, Michael refuted all the charges except the last, for he did believe in a pacifist approach to the Turks. He questioned the authorities regarding their persecution of other Christians. The Turk knows nothing about the Christian faith. He is a Turk according to the flesh. But if you want to be considered Christians, boast of being Christ's, and still persecute his pious witnesses, you are Turks according to the Spirit. He insisted that the Anabaptists had done nothing against the Bible and requested a debate with the Catholic leaders. Sattler asserted that if he and the other Anabaptists could be proved in error, they would gladly accept their punishment. But if we are not shown to be in error, I hope to God that you would accept teaching and be converted, <clears throat> something that 99.9% .9 of the Catholic Church needs today. Correct. The court did not take kindly to the suggestion of his teaching them and returned with their sentence. Michael Settler shall be committed to the hangman, who shall take him to the square and there first cut out his tongue, then chain him to a wagon, tear his body twice with hot tongs there, and five times more before the gate, then burn his body to powder as an arch heretic. As the executioner tied Michael to the ladder, Michael prayed with slurred speech, Almighty Eternal God, thou art the way and the truth, because I have not been shown to be in error, I will with thy help on this day testify to the truth and seal it with my blood. After the fire burned the ropes off of his hands, he raised his hands and struggled to form the words, Father, I commend my spirit into thy hands. After Michael's death, the authorities tried in vain to persuade Margaretha to recant her testimony, but she declared that she would forever remain true to her Lord and to her husband. Eight days after Michael's execution, Margaretha was drowned in the Neckar River that passes through Rottenburg. They ask, do you tend to go along with the flow? taking the path of least resistance? Or, like the Sattlers, do you take the more difficult non-conformist road when your convictions call for it? Well, I will say that your convictions are irrelevant if they're not properly directed convictions. Correct. You can have any kind of conviction. So I, I disagree with the question. If the Lord in his word calls for it is what I would say. And if that's the case, then you be obedient to the word and let the uh, Catholics or whoever the... Uh, the uh, murderers du jour have you. Let them have you. But you stick first to the word of God, and uh, Romans 12, 9 says, hate what is wrong, stand on the side of good. So there you go. That's a perfect description of the Catholic Church in the book of Revelation, where they're the ones that have uh, killed the saints of the Lord, and uh, you know it just goes on and on with them over the years, and yet they can read those words which they usually don't read the Bible anyway, but they can read those words and not find themselves in there somehow. I don't know how. But this is the way of the world. Oh, we got to go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to meet here. And certainly, uh, if things keep going the way they are in this world, we're bound to face all kinds of persecution in the probably the not-too-distant future. And that's okay, Lord, because we are yours. We belong to you. You have sealed us with your spirit. And all we would ask for is just the 
uh, ability to endure whatever comes. You come first, that's for sure. And your word is written, it tells us what to do, and we should cling to it and perform what you ask of us, even at the uh, sake of our own uh, lives if necessary. So give us strength in that, Lord, and give us the wisdom to know when that time is right, what to do, and uh, how to conduct ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who's the skinny guy that just came in? Hey, there he is. Holy mackerel. Holy mackerel. Bert Carrico just walked through the door. Wow. That's an unexpected surprise. And you're late, by the way. Let's not let that happen again. Uh, 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 good to have you here, Bert. You're a month late. Wow, yeah. Month? It's been two months, hasn't it? Five or six weeks, he says. Well, he is here. That's good news. Okay, that's good news. All right. Um, so I, the door opens up, and I'm, I'm kind of like the guard. And I'm watching. Comes in, and I'm like, okay, we're praying. And I can't, like, burn. Yeah, wow. Good stuff, though. Um, we are in the book of Philippians. If you have a Bible, you want to probably turn to that book, and uh, then we want to go to uh, chapter 1 and verse 24, or whatever is the beginning of a paragraph for you. Okay. Well, let's see. I'll go back to where we started on the 10th. And then since we missed the 17th because of uh, Lynn Ferguson's. Yeah. Yep. So, okay, we'll start off with that. And yes, and I will continue to rejoice. But I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my, my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am on, if I to go on living in the body, this will mean uh, fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. Mm. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And then here's 24. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Okay, well, this one is written backwards. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So there you go. Once again, switching things around so that they don't you know, plagiarize one version over another or something. That's um, King James. So yeah, absolutely. Um, the, um, uh, I was thinking about persecution and I got an email today, uh, which may be the first step of that. I, you know, you never know what people are thinking when they send you an email out of the blue, but I got something addressed to the superior word website, not to me personally. And it was um, somebody asking to put flyers up uh, on a debate for LGBT okay in our church and if you would like to do that then we can send you more information and it's not even something to debate so I'm not even going to have it up in our window I don't care if it, they're against it or if they're for it. it doesn't make any difference to me it's not something we are to debate in this church the Bible is written there is no debate what we believe is what the Bible says and that's all there is to it and I thought you know I'm not even going to respond to this email because if I do I could just see them coming back and saying well we're going to sue you because blah 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 yeah. it's not even worth entertaining that yeah. it, it, and it's not it's not worth entertaining that at all um, I would have to tell them though that the way we're set up they probably couldn't make a case anyway but um, silence is the best way that's, silence is just the best way around something as ridiculous as that because 
I'm not here to have people come in and debate their side of an issue that is anti-biblical. It's not going to happen. So there you go with that. So we'll see if we get any more emails or if somebody listens to our uh, Bible study and decides they want to persecute us. Tell them we can't because we have a debate going on whether the earth is flat yeah, or that's, not. Yeah, we're, we're more worried about whether the earth is flat or not. That's exactly right. So that's our, our priority for now. And when we resolve that, then we can get into <laughs> yeah, other debates. Yeah, okay. So Paul has been expressing in writing his struggle between his desire to depart this life and to be with Christ and that of continuing on in this life in order to bear fruit for the gospel. It is as if his mental struggle will actually be determined by the words he writes. And in reality, this is the case. He is writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so one can see the duality of how scripture comes about in his conflict. There is the carnal man who is thinking out his thoughts as a carnal man, unsure about what lies ahead and revealing his own thoughts and desires. This is Paul, he's saying this, and he's writing it out, but he is also under inspiration of this, the Spirit. And so what is coming out of him is showing this struggle within him. It's a lot like the book of Jeremiah. And then there is the inspired prophet of God, who is being led as if a ship directed by the wind through the power of the Holy Spirit. Once again, you could actually think of quite a few of the Old Testament prophets, maybe all of them, but Jeremiah is really a good case study in exactly what's going on here with Paul. The man's thoughts remain his, and they are expressed clearly. And yet the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's will is what takes precedence in order to bring us God's word. Jeremiah says something very similar to that when he says, um, I said that I'm not going to speak anymore in the name of the Lord yet. And I'm, this is Charlie Garrett paraphrase because I'm doing this off the top of my head. But uh, he says something like, yet I could not. It was like a fire shut up in my bones and I was weary of holding it in and I could not. He wanted to just stop preaching the word of the Lord and the Lord's will overrode him. And that's what's happening with Paul. He's like, I, I know I want to do this, but then this. And he's got this struggle. God's word and God's will in his life will prevail. Now, that is not saying that you are going to have God prevail in against your will in your life. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. A prophet is chosen by God to uh, utter forth God's words. They are in a different category and we should not expect that the Lord is going to come and make our decisions for us whether we should get married or whether we should go to the store at 9 o'clock instead of 9.15 or any of those things. What we want to do when we want to get married is to pray to the Lord and if what we are doing is not contrary to his will and we like the girl and she likes me or whatever then you go get married. You, it, it is pointless to ask should I marry this woman or not? I want you to show me because somebody else may want be asking the exact same question. And what is the Lord going to do? He's going to, you just, you live your life the way that you have set in your mind and you go about your life and you pray about everything that you come up with. Everything. That's what you should do. Lord, you know, I want to buy a new car. I would like you to bless that decision. But don't ask him what color of a car you should buy because he's not going to get into those type of details. We are not prophets, we are not apostles, and the Lord, I do not believe, is going to override our will. He's going to do what he sees fit with us in our lives, but he will listen to our prayers, and if we ask him to assist, he will be there guiding us with it, giving us the patience and the tolerance with the buyer, the guy that's selling us the car, and all those kind of things. But 
just I, I would ask people to not, you know, place all of your burdens as far as making decisions on the Lord. Do you take your burdens and say, Lord, I'm just, I'm struggling with this. I would like you to give me your peace. I'd like you, but to to put the onus of something that is your responsibility on the Lord, I don't think is appropriate. Okay, we pray about things and then we move forward after asking for his wisdom to do so or asking for his blessing that we do so, etc. But once again, never pray about something that is against the will of the Lord. We should never do that. If something is scripturally not allowed or it's something that we should not do, we should not even pray about it. That's just, it shows a lack of care about the word of the Lord. And if we do it without knowing the word of the Lord, then that means that we have a lack of wanting to know the word of the Lord. So everything has to come back to the word in our lives. The word is written, it is sealed, and we should be reading it and grasping it. And if we're not sure about it, then do a study on that particular section that you're concerned about or whatever. But uh, there, there has to be a balance in how you approach the Lord with things. So anyway, um, and if you disagree, that's fine. I'm not here to argue with people over that. I just don't go to the Lord and say, you know, I, I need to do this and that, and I'd like you to, you know, tell me if it's okay or not. I, I, that's not the kind of thing I do because I don't think it is appropriate. I say, Lord, I want to go to the store. I would ask that you would just bless my way. Keep me safe or, you know, whatever. So whatever works for you, that's fine. I'm just telling you what I believe is proper. Okay, yes. If you do that for every instance, I think it's more or less, I would like a scapegoat if it doesn't work. Well, that's exactly right. And people will do it, that. It's like, people, yeah. I've heard people actually say that after something doesn't work out. Well, the Lord didn't do it. And they're like they're angry at God for not doing what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Well, then why would you ask him in the first place? Yeah, I, I just, no, I don't know. And that's why I say it is, that's exactly the reason why, without me having thought that far ahead, that's exactly the reason why I say this, is because God is not a scapegoat. He is there to help us with our lives in accord with his will and in accord with his word. Yes. Asking for wisdom. That's exactly right. That's right in scripture, and therefore he is pleased when we do that. That is exactly right. Okay, once again, back to the word, because the word tells us to do that. Okay, so I'm going to read that again about Paul. There is the carnal man who is thinking out his thoughts as a carnal man, unsure about what lies ahead and revealing his own thoughts and desires. And then there is the inspired prophet of God who is being led as if a ship directed by the wind through the power of the Holy Spirit because he is a apostle of God and he's prophesying or he's writing out the words of scripture. The man's thoughts remain his and they are clearly expressed and yet the Holy Spirit's will is what takes precedence in order to bring us God's word. We're not bringing anybody's God, we're not bringing anybody God's word except as it is presented here. Okay, we're not giving any new revelation. And if you think you are, then I I would say you have a deficiency in your thinking. Um, Rather, throughout the Bible, we see exactly this occurring time and time again. Even a cursory read through Isaiah, Daniel, here it is, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, or any of the other prophetic writings will show this to be the case. Because it is also true with Paul, he now writes the words of this verse, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. He's understanding the will of the Lord for him, that the Lord wants him there for a certain amount of time, and until that time is fulfilled, then he will remain. And whenever that time is fulfilled, he'll probably know that. He's a prophet of God, and he knows that his end is coming. 
You know, I don't know how much these people were given insights into their own destinies other than the will of the Lord in Scripture. But, you know, a good example of this, different, completely different premise, but a good example of this is that there are times where we've already seen in uh, Acts chapter 4 where Peter walked up to a man and he's crippled and the guy is just begging for alms and Peter looks at him and says, you know, I don't have... Uh, silver and gold, but what I have, I give you in the name of the Lord. Rise up and walk, or whatever. It's once again, I'm paraphrasing that, but he healed the guy right then. And we see at other times where Peter or Paul could not heal somebody. Okay, right in Paul's writings, he says it like four or five times. I've, I left uh, Trophimus sick in Miletus, and um, he couldn't certainly heal himself. He had to ask the Lord to take this burden from him three times, and the Lord said, "My grace is sufficient for you." And Epaphroditus almost died for the sake of the gospel. So there are times when they could not do something, but there are times when they knew that I'm going to heal this person right now. And so that's kind of the same thought, even though it's a different subject completely, is that there are times when they knew that they were prophesying the word of the Lord, and there are times when they probably had, they, they just were doing their thing and, you know, not in any way writing out the word of the Lord. Healing, same thing. And so, and what does that do? That just blows away these faith healers that, you know, claim healing over everybody and it doesn't happen. If the apostles couldn't do it, except at the will of the Lord and for a circumstance that was recorded in the Bible or which built up the early church because it needed to be built up until the word of God was written, it tells you that these people today that do these things, charlatans, yes. Okay, Paul had no idea which option to choose, but the Holy Spirit did. He wrote what he knew in his inner being because of the Spirit's prompting. Despite the conflict, he yielded to the Spirit. Nevertheless, he says, nevertheless, in so yielding, the oracle came through. He would, as he says, remain in the flesh. This was what God had determined, and this is what would come to pass. He would not go to be with the Lord at this time, but rather he would remain in his earthly body. There was still scripture to write. There were still people to meet. There were, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, missionary trips to take and countries to be evangelized. And so he knew that he would be staying for a, a certain period. And the reason is that it was more, his words, more needful for those he ministered to at Philippi and elsewhere. He understood that there was a need. He understood you know, that the Lord was using him in a certain capacity. Now, whether he knew that he was actually writing out the words of the Lord or not, I won't go that far. Sometimes he knew that this is something, and there's no doubt about it. But there are other times, and how do I know that? Is because Peter says he equates Paul's writings to Scripture. If Peter knew that, then Paul must have known, or he must have uh, realized it afterward. But with the Old Testament prophets, they knew when they were prophesying the word of the Lord. They would go up to the people in Jerusalem and they said, this is the word of the Lord or hear the word of the Lord or something like that. So there were times where they absolutely knew what they were saying and what they were presenting. Whether Paul knew this at the time or not, it became evident later. As I said with Peter, where he says, you know, Paul, he equated Paul's writings with the rest of scripture. Okay. The need, this need was certainly, Paul's need to stay, was certainly one, to ensure that all of the word of God, which was to come from his pen, would, in fact, come. And two, to ensure that those he had brought to Christ would be prepared for the time when he was no longer with them. Okay, so we have those 
two things that are certain about that. This is seen, for example, in the words he spoke to those of the Ephesian church in Acts 28, I'm sorry, Acts 20, verses 28 through 31. There he says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, and now he knows what he is saying is a prophetic oracle. He knows it. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, what that sounds like the people in the military in the U.S. today, people rising up to pull other people away from it's it just unbelievable. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. For these and whatever other reasons, Paul is inspired to write the words of this verse. It should not be considered unusual that the Spirit impelled him in this way. As noted above, this type of dual working between the man and the Spirit is found throughout Scripture. If there was ever a conflict or a misunderstanding between the two, the Spirit would prevail. And here it is. I'm talking about it, and here it is. Jeremiah shows us a marvelous example of this. O oh Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I, and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. So here's this guy suffering under the word of the Lord. He's being reproached because of it. He knows that it's the word of the Lord. He knows that he has this commission. He's speaking to the people and they're just abusing him physically at times, verbally, constantly. And so what does he say? Jeremiah 20 verse nine. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak anymore in his name. This is his decision, the prophet of God. I'm not going to do it anymore. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. Jeremiah strived against the word of the Lord, and the Spirit of God prevailed in the struggle. Paul was unsure of what would happen in his future, but the Spirit settled the matter with the word which he uttered and which was confirmed by the issue of ink from the pen held in the scribe's hand. No doubt about it, this is the way it works in their lives. At times they knew it, especially the prophets, the apostles, it appears that they knew it at least many times, if not all times. But the reason why the Lord could override Jeremiah goes right back to the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah. And so we'll find out why the Lord was able to do that to him. And it says... Um, uh, yeah, starting right at verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. The Lord chose him. It was outside of his will or choice. It was a sovereign decision of the Lord. He made that choice, and it is going to come to pass. Then I said, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth. For you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. He had no choice in the matter, and when he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not speak anymore, it was tough luck for him. He had to do what 
the Spirit of the Lord impelled him to do. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. Then the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. And so Jeremiah was commissioned by the Lord. The Lord had known him before he was born. He decided this person is going to be my prophet and I'm going to override his will. And that is his right to do that. Okay. I do not believe that the Lord works that way with us today. I've already said that once. I, I, there's nothing in scripture to justify that, that the Lord is going to override our will, but he expects us to ask his will, to ask, as Steve said, ask for wisdom, ask for guidance, ask for blessing upon what you're doing. Um, what does Paul say about uh, sanctifying things through prayer? You pray for it, the Lord sanctifies it, and if it's in his will and it's meant to be, then it'll happen, and if it's not, it's not going to happen. Okay, but... Jeremiah strived against the word of the Lord and the spirit of God prevailed in the struggle. Life application. <clears throat> we do not know the future, but guess what? God does. Let us not worry about what lies ahead. Think of that guy that we read about in the, uh, you know, the Catholic Church drawing and quartering him and then burning him and all that crazy stuff. I mean, why worry about it? If you know that you're the Lord, if you actually believe what the word of God says, what does it matter what somebody does to you? I mean, it can be painful in the process, but then you ask the Lord for his, you know, endurance through it. Let us not worry about what lies ahead, but rather let us trust that his plan will unfold exactly as it should. God's plan cannot be thwarted as it is a good plan. Let it come and have no fear as it does. We know it's a good plan. Everything that God does is good. It has a good ultimate end. And if our part in that plan is good or bad, yay, either way. Okay, he is using us to his glory. So, yield to his will. Derision. Derision. Is that to make fun of? Or? Well, it, it, yes, derision. When you deride somebody, you're, you're like, you know, you're, you're not speaking of the word of the Lord or, you know, just deriding. It's just a way of putting somebody down to uh, abase them and to abuse them. And derision is, uh, uh, help me out with derision. Um, Speaking negatively. I negatively. Think. I mean, it, it can encompass a lot of things. Derision is something. Absolutely. The Lord will have them in derision, meaning that they're they're going to be abased. They're going to be. Uh oh. You've got a you got an important phone call. You better get that. Anyway, yeah. The word derision. Go look it up in the dictionary, and it'll probably give you a better explanation than what I can give you. But it's just abasing somebody, deriding somebody. Uh, you know, saying bad things about them, pointing down at them. And uh, ultimately, um, they are shamed because of what has happened. And so when the, it says the Lord will have them in derision, they will be shamed through the Lord's bringing them to that state. So I guess that's probably the, the closest I could get to it is coming to a state of shame. Whether it's intentional or not intentional, like the people doing it against Jeremiah, they're intentionally doing it, but they're not actually putting him in a state of derision other than from their own self but the Lord is approving of him. So he's not in, it's something that happens from one perspective to another, like shame. Okay. I just looked it up. Okay, go ahead. You fool, why have you looked this up? You should know what it means. Okay, <laughs> to deride. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So you didn't look it up. Okay. No, I didn't. I'm sorry. All right, we're in 125. I drew. Okay. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Okay. Um, hang on one second. Progress in the faith. Okay. Derision, contemptuous ridicule or mockery. My stories were greeted with derision and disbelief. What is an example of derision? A deriding or being derided, contempt or ridicule. The definition of derision is a feeling of deep hatred. An example of derision is the feeling opposite, I'm sorry, the feeling opposing street gangs have for one another. Okay, so there you go, derision. It's just like, like I said, it's just I like, like a contemptuous. Yeah, yours is pretty good. Okay. The what? There we go. The least coins on Saturday means you get derision. Okay. Um, 25, and being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. So it's not too far off from what you had. Okay. As noted in the previous verse, there is a hint of the overriding of the Spirit in Paul's words. He may not be speaking as if he is fully aware of the matter in his human nature, and yet, his words are being directed by the Spirit. This is evidenced by the fact that they are included in the pages of the Bible. There are other times, <clears throat> excuse me, where Paul spoke of the future as if he was uncertain of a matter, or he was certain of a matter, and yet his words were proven incorrect. This occurs when the narrative is speaking about what he is saying, and it is intended to show that he and the other apostles and prophets we're not fully aware of the future in their humanity. They say something, this is going to happen, and it doesn't happen. It's showing that they are limited. They're not speaking the word of the Lord. They're just whatever. And yet, when writing or prophesying, they were guided by the Spirit. It is an amazing thing to see unfold in Scripture. In this feeling of surety, which is both lacking in his humanity and yet prophetic because of the prompting of the Spirit, he, said, he states and being confident of this. That's his words. In these words, he yields himself to the prompting which is from the Spirit. Again, this must be the case as the words are now included in Scripture. And yet, other scholars disagree, excuse me, and state that he is simply voicing a confidence which is one of continued uncertainty. Because of this, the next words have to be somewhat manipulated. He says, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all. Albert Barnes states, the word know, however, is not to be pressed as denoting absolute necessity. For it appears from Philippians 1.27 and Philippians 2.17 that there was some ground for doubt whether he would live, but it is to be taken in a popular sense as denoting good courage and an earnest hope that he would be permitted to live and to visit them. So that's Albert Barnes' take on this. This is a possible explanation of Paul's words, but it does not coincide with the conflict which he is struggling with. It was suddenly resolved with the words of this verse. Further, if Paul had instead died, the words which he wrote as a part of an epistle of doctrine to the Philippians would have been proven false. And so what he is saying is absolutely under the inspiration of the Spirit. 100%, because like I said, if he was to die after saying this, in this context, because obviously he's dead now, but he would have been proven false in his words, and thus there would have been a problem with scripture. 
Such would not be the case if this was inspired by the Spirit. And so, in his confidence, he notes that he will continue with these disciples, his words, for your progress and joy of faith. It was necessary for their continued doctrinal education that he stay. The Spirit had so indicated it, and he came to realize that this was true. And in receiving this, it would strengthen their joy of the faith. Faith is something we possess in varying measure. When our faith is weak, our joy in what our faith is directed to is weak. But when our faith is strong, our joy in what it is directed to is also strong. If we are certain of the outcome of a presidential race, that's having faith, okay? I have absolute certainty that he's going to win tomorrow. Having faith that our candidate will win, we will be joyous about that fact. However, as the odds of probability drop, so, we're all, so will our level of joy in what lies ahead. Now, obviously, this all changed over the last election. So just because you know something doesn't mean it's going to happen. But we can uh, just use that as an example. When I say that oh, I, I'm absolutely certain he's going to win, you're out there and you're at the rallies and you're, hey, you got your banners up and you got things hanging outside and you're all happy about it. But as soon as the, the poll numbers are really low and it's pretty certain that your candidate isn't going to win, then you get depressed. You get more influence. Oh, we got four more years with that guy. And so anyway, Paul understood that he had not yet given the full measure of doctrinal knowledge out that would be necessary for full joy and confidence in the work of the Lord. And so, as led by the Spirit, he assured his audience, and thus us, that he would continue on until that work was complete. Okay, now, you uh, will often have people that are, uh, we'll just say a preacher. It can be any uh, vocation, but we'll say a preacher. And he's, you know, like me, I do my sermons way in advance. And so you could say, well, I've got all these sermons and I know the Lord is going to allow me to give them, okay? And that's kind of presumptuous, okay? But uh, in the case of having sermons typed out in advance, I have already taken measures for that by letting somebody know that who has access into my computer that this is the only thing that I want to be completed in, after my demise. If I, demise, if I die tomorrow, this person knows that there are 10 sermons that need to be given. Okay, so I've made provision for that because I am not in any way, shape, or form going to say I'm going to be here next Sunday to give you this sermon. I may be here and I'd like to be here, but it does not mean I'm going to be here. Okay, Paul is being careful with his words, but at the same time, the Spirit is guiding his words. So we have something completely different and unique in that circumstance. But it doesn't matter what the vocation is. It doesn't matter what the occasion is, like a coming vacation or whatever. And that is why James specifically says, do not say, next year I'm going to go to this and this city and do this and that, okay? What you should do is if the Lord wills it. And that is the case with everything, including getting out that door, okay? I mean, somebody could have a heart attack right here tonight, and then you're not going to get out that door. So everything is up to the Lord everything. And we need to acknowledge that in everything we do. And if we do that, then we're going to be a lot happier with our own lives because it just takes the pressure off of us about worrying, you know, is the war over there going to spread over and, you know, is it going to make the gas prices $25 a gallon? Why would we even worry about that? I mean, it's good to think about it. It's good to plan in life, but it's not something you can control. There's nothing you can do about it. And so just live your life and let the Lord be the center of your focus. 
Hebrews 12 to let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Everything else is temporary. Everything else is passing away. Solomon. Keep your eyes on Jesus. What? Solomon. Oh yes, yeah, Solomon. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's a great example of that. Read Ecclesiastes. Read um, uh, Proverbs gives you lots of good insights into that. Okay, life application. <clears throat> if the surety of our joy of faith is based on our knowledge of the work of Christ, and if that knowledge is only imparted to us in the pages of Scripture, then why on earth would we not want to know this marvelous body of doctrine completely and perfectly? If, I'll read it again. If the surety of our joy of faith, because everybody in every church around America right now has their hope in Christ. I don't care, you know, like that lady that was over in Mongolia, she says that I, you know, I'm following Christ, okay? Obviously she's not, but she claims that she is. If your joy is in Christ, if your hope is in Jesus, and you say that, and I would say this especially pertains to these Pentecostals and Charismatics, they're all about joy. They're all about happiness, okay? If the surety of your joy of faith is based on your knowledge of the work of Christ, and if that knowledge is only imparted to us in the pages of Scripture, then why on earth would we not want to know this marvelous body of doctrine completely and perfectly? Now, obviously, Pentecostals, Charismatics, and other denominations believe that they get revelation from the Lord. And so they can make little pen marks in the back of their Bible and say, well, I know that this, and they just add into the Word of God, and that's fine for them. I do not accept that. As a matter of fact, I completely reject that. 100%. This Word is written. We can expect no more revelation from the Lord as far as the things that pertain to our life, our doctrine, and our practice. If you disagree, that's fine. But you are the one that is setting yourself up for the fall if you're not willing to learn this word and to study it and to read it and to pursue it all the days of your life this is the onus is on you when things go south and how do we be know that that is like sealed is that because of the revelations where it says well jesus commissioned the apostles okay an apostle is a sent one we could have an apostle of the superior word right we could there's no point. Why would we say this was an apostle? It's crazy, you know. But no, 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 no. An apostle is a sent one. If they were an apostle of the superior word, they would be sent from the superior word. Okay. The apostles are given the body of scripture. They're the ones that will go out and define what is coming for the church, right? Yeah. Are there any more apostles of Jesus Christ? No, there you go. That's the answer to your the question. Prophets, how do we say there are no more prophets? There are no more prophets. Because the, last because the uh, apostolic age okay. is ended. The word is sealed with the, with the word amen at the end of Revelation. If you disagree with that, and I'm not saying you do, I'm just simply saying if you disagree with that, then you become the source of doctrine for whatever you want to believe. No. You become the arbiter of God's word. And that is a very dangerous place to be, and the Bible does not authorize that in any way, shape, or form. There has to be a standard, and you are not that standard. But when people like Joseph Smith come along and they say, well, I'm going to write a book of Mormon, who's going to hold him to account? The word. Either the word or nothing. That is it. It's either the word or nothing. When Ellen G. White comes along, the Seventh-day Adventist, and says, I've gone to heaven and I've had these visions and I'm telling you this and this and this, which is still their doctrine to this day, who is going to believe the standard? 
It either comes from the word or it does not. When what she says contradicts the word of God, then it cannot be true. But unfortunately, there are countless, countless thousands of people in those two denominations and many others that accept further revelation from the word of God. And the onus is now on them for their happiness, for their joy, for their, and when things go bad, they've only got themselves to blame. If you are grounded in this word, when you come to the end of your existence because of whatever trial comes, you can say what those Anabaptists did at the beginning of this. I stand on the word of God. I'm not standing on my own thoughts, on my own lunacy. I am standing on the word of God. So we all have to make our choice. This is my job in this church is to tell you, I believe, Charlie Garrett, that this is full, final, and fully sufficient. That's what I believe. And I, I will never teach otherwise. If you hear me come in here and say, I had a vision this coming Sunday, get up and leave. I, I'm telling you that in advance because I do not believe that. I do not believe that the Lord works that way. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't come any other way. But they, they're, they're so often consistently wrong. Oh, they're always and wrong. It's like, you know, so it's like a, a like anybody, like the weatherman. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like you're, you're making a prediction based on what you think might happen. Absolutely. And, you know. It, it shows you the pointlessness of it. But right. eventually, oh, okay, let's do that with the rapture before we go on. We'll do that with the rapture. Okay. I'm going to predict the rapture's coming on uh, August 18th of this year. Wait, not that Okay, that, that, yeah, okay. no, not the 18th. We'll make it the 19th. August okay, 19th okay. of this 27th. year. Okay, August 27th. No more. August 27th, that's it. The rapture's going to happen yes. on August 27th, okay? So, we are now made our prediction, and August 27th comes, and it goes. And next week, we're now predicting September 18th, okay? That's it, September 18th. I'm not changing for anybody. Okay, and then it doesn't happen. And, so, and this is what people do all the time. There are rapture boards out there that do this all day long. We're going to predict the rapture for April 17th, and it doesn't happen. Nobody is held accountable, and then they just go to another date. They come up with another calculation. And these people post on these things like, I went to 7-Eleven today, and I gave them a $10 bill, and I got $7.77 back. And that is a sign from God that I'm right about. And they post this stuff all day long, Okay. Guess what's going to happen eventually? Somebody's going to say the rapture is going to happen on 23 December. And it actually happens on 23 December. Does it make any difference at all? It doesn't. It makes zero difference. Unless but they every, didn't go. No, well, to them, yeah. And that's just it. Are they even going to go? Are these same people? But if they're, we're just assumed that they're going to go. What difference does it make? It makes zero difference in the world. But every false prediction that they made has harmed somebody right. in the process. Every single one of them has harmed somebody. Crazy Nobody person. goes away unscathed from false predictions. And that's why the word of God must be the ultimate standard. And when Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons, you're not to predict those things. You're to let the Lord be the Lord. Now we can know the general time frame because the Bible gives us a general outline but it doesn't give us specifics and that is for a reason it's because he doesn't want us focusing on that he wants us focusing on his word on telling people about it on preaching on ministering on doing the things that we are as christians responsible to do but the word of god must be the standard and then it's our job to find out what is the word catholics add in the apocrypha is that the word or not okay some cults add in the book of enoch is that the word of god or not how can you know? And that takes study. It takes understanding. It takes 
uh, historical knowledge, etc. But eventually, it must come back to the Word of God. It cannot come back from your head, because if it does, the onus is now on you for all of your happiness, all of your joy, and for your standing before the Lord, your judgment before the Lord. I would rather cling to this and let the Lord judge me on this than on my own delusions. Anyway, so you get the point. Yeah, thank you, okay. Frank. I'll only have four more questions. Okay, that's fine. Okay, um, let's see here. So I uh, did, the, I, yes, I read that and um, I read that, read the word. Oh yeah, I got one more thing. Whose fault is it when we struggle with life's uncertainties? Read the word, study to show yourself approved. That is what we are to do. If we are in this word and if we are truly believing that this word is life, it is the way to understanding Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other revelation apart from this word, then we better get to know this word. We better live by this word. Apply it to our lives. Think on it. Meditate on it. Play it in your car. Read it when you wake up. Read it when you go to bed. And I know that I say this all the time, and I'm sure that some people listen to these studies and they really enjoy these studies and they do not do what I'm saying. You're, the, you're only harming yourself by not doing that. This study is fine. Listening to other, other studies is fine. But knowing the Word of God and reading it every day is where you absolutely must be. And if you're not doing that, I would ask you to do that. Because I could be completely wrong in what I'm telling you. I could be making stuff up, okay? I would not intentionally do that, but I could. Because there's a lot of people out there that do, okay? They manipulate this, they twist it, and they pull souls away from a, a, a proper grounding in the Word. So it is up you to out. you. What? We'd call well, you. Yeah, you'd call me out on it if you knew the Word. Have you been reading it? Do you know it? Okay, 126. Oh. Paul said in Romans in the introduction there, he says, for you, you're going to minister to me, and I want to minister to you, that they could be growth. Right. And, and this, and he says, progress in the joy of the faith. He wanted them to progress. Absolutely. To progress. So he's going back over that stuff. He wants us all to progress in the faith. Yeah. Every one of us. And if we're not, if you're not going forward in the faith, I'm sorry, you're not standing idle. You're going back. It's, it's either forward or back. There is no idol in anything in life. I'm sorry, if you think I'm just going to stand here, you're getting older. You're not getting younger. You're, you're always moving. There is no such thing as stagnancy in anything you're doing, okay? If you have pipes in your house, those pipes are getting older. Eventually, they will have to be replaced. Everything is in a state of motion. It may take 100 years, but those pipes are eventually going to go bad. That's just the way it is, or they're going to clog, or whatever. Nothing stays stagnant. Everything is moving. Thanks for all that plumbing. Oh, yeah, plumbing. Yeah, well, hey, that's if you got bad plumbing, that's your problem. Okay, I'm not coming over to fix it. I'm all done with plumbing. I did that for years and years and years, and I could plumb as well as anybody, but I'm not doing that no more. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, talk, I, I'm, I'm to the point where I want to get rid of a lot of jobs. I mean, things that I know how to do that I just... There is only so much time in life, and this is what I want to be doing. This is what I want to be doing. Okay, 126. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. <gasps> that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. I can't sue you. Okay. No, you can't, but it says something entirely different. Read yours again. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. 
okay, on account of me, that your rejoicing for me, not on account of me, may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Okay, I, are you sure you're reading 126? He is. It's that different. Can you imagine that? Okay, just wanted to make sure. I, because I thought I checked mine three times to make sure I was reading the right one. That's a big difference there. It is, but it's it's like if the joy is in Christ. Well, Jesus. that's it's not true. Him. Well, I mean, that's you know, true. He does. But the subject is completely different. Correct. So okay. He says confidence in me. Yeah. He does. He says you got confidence in me. Okay. Well, this one says that you're rejoicing for me. Hmm. It doesn't say confidence in me. Oh, well, See, there's a big difference there. Okay, I we'll go on. Take pride. Take pride. Oh no. <laughs> Okay, this verse is to be taken together with the previous verse for context. So I'm going to read, read it to you from this version, okay? I use the New King James Version for studies and sermons. Unless, if I cite something else, I will always say what version I'm using. I may not say it during the sermon, but it's in the notes. And I try to remember to say it during the sermon as well. Because, you know, I just want people to know if there's a diversion from just the standard text that I'm using. Okay, but here's the two verses together. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Okay, Paul, led by the prompting of the Spirit, was confident that he would live and not die at this time. This would then result in the rejoicing of those in Philippi in Jesus Christ. His words, the rejoicing in him is the full result of what would occur, but it would also be in Paul's return to them. The translation is not literal, but it catches the intent of what is being said. This, unlike that of the King James Version, which does not convey the correct meaning. The Greek of the verse says, in Jesus Christ, in me, through my coming again to you. There is a parallelism in the re repetition of the use of in. I'll read that. This is a more literal Greek reading. In Jesus Christ, in me, through my coming again to you. Okay, you've got the repetition of in by Paul to show that even though the presence of Paul is the immediate cause of their joy, it is a joy which has arisen out of the fact that Christ Jesus lives in him. They would rejoice in Jesus Christ for what had come about. This verse shows us that it is acceptable to rejoice in the accomplishments or even in the presence of another. However, that rejoicing needs to be considered in light of the greater rejoicing which comes through Christ who dwells in that person. Okay, um, sometimes it, I think the reason why I probably typed that the way I did is because sometimes people will get ultra pious and that always bothers me. You know, it's like everything gets extended beyond what it should be. And they're trying to make themselves look ultra holy or ultra pious. And that bothers me. If he has done a great job, then I should rejoice in that. And I can say at the same time, he's done a great job. He's a great representative of Christ. Christ is ultimately getting the, the credit but there's nothing wrong with complimenting somebody else. But you will find people that will not do that. They will not allow anything to go to the secondary source. And that is contra 
contradictory to what Paul is doing right here in this verse. So, it's good to include the, the Lord in all good words and in all good compliments, but at the same time, there's nothing wrong with complimenting somebody for having done a good job or for, uh, like on Sunday, Claudia wasn't in church, shame on her, but she was given a compliment during church because of something that she does when she is here. But when she's not here, she can't do it, so shame on her for not being here. I'm kidding about that part. Uh, I'm kidding about the, the, the second part, but uh, during church, if you remember, I complimented her about yeah. something that she does, and there's nothing wrong with that. And the whole point was that the Lord is glorified through her work, so you, there's nothing wrong with that. But some people will not do that, and, and it's, it's an attempt to show how extra holy or pious they are, and all it does to me is it makes them look, I won't say it. Anyway, um, okay. In other words, I'm going to read that again. We can rejoice. Oh, I didn't read this yet. In other words, we can rejoice in a great preacher of the gospel. However, it is that Christ is in him that the rejoicing finds its fullest sense. Okay, I talk about this somewhere else in something that I read within the past week. Exactly the same premise from something else I wrote. Anyway, the point is that some people get starstruck by a, uh, a pastor. And they'll go to the church and they'll sit right in the front row of the uh, the church and they'll just sit there and ogle and they'll, you know, oh, he's the greatest thing in the world. And that's all they talk about. Listen, Jesus commissioned this person or Jesus, this person is preaching on behalf of Jesus. It's fine to give the pastor a compliment, but it is to be something that he is in the Lord and he is honoring the Lord. It's The focus isn't supposed to be especially on that person, but it can be on that person. Okay, however, it is that Christ is in him that the rejoicing finds its fullest sense. The use of the parallel in is thus instructive. In the end, all rejoicing finds its true home in the Lord. In the case of Paul, the Philippian church would receive its joy when he was released to come to them again. And it would be rejoicing in him, Paul, in Christ Jesus. So you have the extra compliment which ultimately goes to the Lord. And if he wasn't in Christ Jesus, then there wouldn't be any need to compliment him or even say anything about him concerning the issue at hand. Life application. Rejoice in the Lord is good. Let's do it today. Okay? That's what we should be doing. Rejoice in the Lord. 127. Um, in one second, though. But oh. um, what's interesting is how he's like saying, okay, do I stay? Do I go? And I am going to stay to help you and... Uh, my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. He's still with us. Absolutely. <laughs> it's just insane that, like, you know, he wrote these down and, like, you know, he's thinking, okay, I'm going to die eventually. But he's, he's still right here with us. He is. His he's words doing are exactly what he put out to do if you read this thing. If you lot. read this, if you listen to the words of it, if you apply it to your lives, then Paul is still here in, the pre in our presence in a way because he is in Christ and the Holy Spirit is the one that inspired him to write these things and so we still have his words. Same thing as Jeremiah, same thing as anybody else that was in the Bible is that they still have an effect on us today because the Lord commissioned them for that. Living word. Living word. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. That was a long verse. That was a massive That was a long verse. Okay. Run on sentence. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come 
and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Very close to what they wrote. Okay, 127. Paul has just penned his certainty that he will remain in his earthly body and continue with those at Philippi for progress and joy of faith. That was his words from the previous verse. After this, he noted that this rejoicing would abound in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Having said that, he now gives words of exhortation for them to consider. He begins with, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word he uses for your conduct is politomai. It specifically means to live as a citizen. You can see it right in there, politics or, you know, the polity or whatever. Uh, most translations make this word to indicate conduct or manner of life. But Paul was probably thinking more on the idea of citizenship itself. Thus, the New Literal translates this verse as, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Jesus Christ. Now, the NLT at times may be a little more of a paraphrase, but this is probably what is on Paul's mind here as he is saying this, is that you are citizens of heaven. The uh, New King James Version again says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, he is saying that it, or the NLT is saying, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. The word is only used elsewhere in Acts 23, verse 1, where Paul was thinking on the same terms. He was a citizen of Rome, and he had exercised his citizenship as a Roman to make an appeal for his case directly to Caesar. Therefore, he was living his citizenship in Rome as well as his citizenship in heaven. And Paul had no problem with that. Before I go on, I brought this up in lots and lots of prophecy updates, but we should have zero problem, zero problem as Christians living our lives as citizens of the nation that we live in. As a matter of fact, we should use that citizenship as a tool to affect the purposes of the gospel. And that is why I am so absolutely opposed to these weak or super pious Christians that are always saying, I don't think we should be voting. That's, we're Christians and we're, we're citizens of heaven. You are also citizens of whatever country you're living in. If you're in Japan, you're a citizen of Japan. Paul never ever didn't use his Roman citizenship. He always used it. Every single opportunity he could to further the gospel, to save himself from being punished at times or for whatever other reason, to travel, to do whatever he could, he always used his citizenship. The same people that say, I'm not going to vote because I'm a citizen of heaven, I guarantee you that they pay their taxes, okay? The same people I that say- you, they do a lot of stuff. They do a lot of things as it. citizens, but then when it comes to voting, all of a sudden they're ultra pious and they say, I'm not gonna do that because, and all that does is it shows a weak and ineffective Christian in the nation in which he lives. And I don't care what nation it is. You have a responsibility as a citizen to conduct yourselves as citizens. Okay, that's why the table of nations is listed in Genesis chapter 10. The Lord divided the nations. He divided the peoples and he sets the boundaries of the nations. This is said throughout scripture in one way or another. You're gonna see this all the way through the Bible. The Lord determines the nations. 
Do you know that the uh, nations that are in the Middle East today, okay, are termed in the Old Testament in prophecy as the same nations that were there 2,000 years ago? They're different nations. Jordan is there now. Moab isn't there. But guess what? When he prophesies about that area, what does he call it? Moab or Edom or he calls it Philistia. That's right there in scripture. When he's talking about today prophecy, he's using those terms because those people are in, in those areas that the Lord determined at that time, okay? He sets the boundaries. He determines where every person will be. Go read Acts 17, 26 through 28. He determined where you will be, when you would be, and what your purpose will be in that life. Use it. Use what the Lord has given you, okay? Don't be a weak Christian. I'm Read this again. Um, the word is used only elsewhere in Acts 23.1, where Paul was, I know people that just um, moved to America and they are working on citizenship within the United States of America. Okay, why, why would they do that if, in fact, you weren't supposed to exercise your citizenship? Because whatever you do, do it for the Lord. That's you're exactly working, right. Whatever you're doing, you're in the Lord. You're in the Lord, the Lord, do it citizen, for the Lord. Be citizen for the Lord as well. You're... That's exactly yeah. right. You are you're a dual citizen. Okay, not so not once does the Bible ever tell you not to be a compliant citizen. That's exactly right. And it, so, to be a compliant citizen means you are a voter, a citizen. Right. Yeah. Unless you live in Russia. Well, that's course, true. That's different. That's, that, that can be different. Okay, the word is used only here, elsewhere, in Acts 23.1, where Paul was thinking on the same terms. He was citizen of Rome and had exercised his citizenship as a Roman to make an appeal for his case directly to Caesar. Therefore, he was living his citizenship in Rome as well as citizenship in heaven in order to meet the goals of the gospel. That was Paul's goal. This is certainly what he is thinking now. He, because he uses a variant of this word again in verse 320, where he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's a citizen of Rome, he's a citizen of heaven, and he had no problem dealing with both of them at the same time. In this letter to Philippi, he is writing to a Roman, mo I'm sorry, he is writing to a location mostly inhabited by Roman citizens. This is because Philippi was a Roman colony. He had even declared his own Roman citizenship right there in Acts 16. Acts 16, 37, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now, do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. Once again, he appealed to his Roman citizenship. Understanding this, we can see that his words to this group, he was reminding them that even if some of them were Roman citizens, they had a higher citizenship by which they should conduct their lives. So when you're in the U.S., we'll just pick the U.S. because that's where we are, most of us right now, then we want to live our lives as citizens of the U.S. But if there is something that occurs in the United States that forces us to make a choice between adherence to the Word of God or citizenship, allegiance to the United States of America, you must choose the Word of God. You must become a disobedient citizen of America in order to be compliant to the Word of God. And that may come in our lifetime. It, it, it's, it, right now, that is what they are working on. 
They're doing it right now. I mean, right now, a case is going to the U.S. Supreme Court where a person does websites. And, of course, there's 10 billion people that do websites out there. Okay, you could go online and get one of 10 billion people to do a website for you. But some LGBT people, whatever, maybe I said that wrong a second time, some of those people decided they were going to press this person, a Christian, to do a website for them. Now, they have a choice to have anybody do a website, but they picked on this person, and this person said, that violates my conscience. I cannot do that. And right now, that is at the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And we're going to find out what the decision is. But they could have gone to anybody, and they could have gotten a website, and they probably didn't even need a website. They're just trying to take away our rights. If you want to not vote, if you want to sit in a corner and act like you're a citizen of heaven, all you're doing is harming your own cause for Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that you're doing. You're not helping anything. You're just, you're, you know what, a, you got a log and you put your hand over it and it's bumpy, you're just a bump on the log. That's all you are. Okay. My question would always be is that if they had to make a choice, if they were seriously thinking they were citizens of heaven, what would they do? What would they literally do? No, well, they'd have so, to end their lives to go be up in heaven. Right. Absolutely. Ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. Okay, so um, oh, where was I now? Um, uh, okay, citizenship by which they should conduct their lives. He then explains the reason for this. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, that you stand fast in one spirit. There was to be no division among them based on their earthly status. Those who were citizens of Rome were to be in the same spirit with those who were slaves. The principle passes down to us today. We are to be united without regard to social status, fame, or any lesser division. Rather, we are to be in one spirit. The spirit is the higher connection to God, which comes through faith in Christ. A person who is not in Christ is dead in his spirit. But through Christ, the spirit is quickened to life. And the connection to God is repaired to the state it was originally intended to be. In this spiritual connection, believers are to be united as one. Every single believer is united as one, so they should act like they are united as one. Sometimes it's awful hard. We have difficulties with people. We have differences with people. We have people that just want to keep pushing your buttons all day long. That happens, you know, and it, nobody wants to live through that, but that happens to some of us. And there's a point where we have to say, you know, I just, I, I can't do this. You know, I, I just, but we are to do our best to live in one spirit with all believers, okay? Further, he notes that they are to be with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul's words, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is our primary duty here. When Jesus, uh, take you right there, Matthew 28, what did he say? I mean, he obviously said more because he ascended in Acts, but this is called the Great Commission for a reason. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Guess when he said that? He said that after he initiated a new covenant. New covenant. Thank you. Right? I'm sorry, hyper-dispensationalists say that he's speaking to the Jews about the, the uh, end times and the millennium. That is insane. 
There is one new covenant. There is one gospel. And when Jesus says, go and do these things, we are to go and do these things. Okay. So <clears throat> where is it? Um, further, he notes that they are to be with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The word translated as mind here is suki. It refers specifically to the soul. As the spirit is the higher connection to God, the soul is the human connection to one another. In essence, we could think of Paul's intent here as let your spiritual connection to God be as one and let your earthly lives strive together for the faith of the gospel. Everybody working together for the same goal. There was to be a uniting of their spiritual and earthly efforts for harmony among one another and for that harmony to be employed in their earthly conduct in order to build one another up in the faith. Life application. <clears throat> there is nothing wrong with living out our earthly lives as citizens of the country in which we live. As long as we realize that our true citizenship is in heaven, the earthly citizenship should never be conducted without considering the heavenly, ever. And this goes for personal conduct as well as interactions with other believers. Our first duty is always to Christ, but we are to live out our lives here. And as I said, if something happens in whatever country you're in, I don't care if you're in China or if you're wherever you are, if something happens and it is contradictory to the word of God, here's an example that I use because it's so basic and simple. We have abortion rights in the United States of America. That is the law. If somebody wants to go and have an abortion, that is their right to do so, okay? If you disagree with that, you have the right to go down to Planned Parenthood and stand out front of there and protest. That is your right to do that. They can't tell you no, and you cannot tell them no. Now, if a nation says you must abort your children, you must disobey that law. You must, because the sanctity of human life comes above the will or desire of that nation. So, you see the difference. We can't go and shoot abortion doctors because you don't like abortion. That is improper. All you're doing is committing another sin on top of the sins that are already being committed. Okay, that is the law. And you can work within the structure of the society like they're doing in Texas and in Florida and in many other states to do away with abortion. South Dakota is doing the same thing. That is what you do as a citizen of the nation is you work to effect the changes that you believe are proper, especially in accord with the word. But if the nation decides that you must do something contrary to the word, and the example is aborting a child, you must disobey that. If they come and take you and strap you down, that is not your fault. That now becomes the fault of the state because they forced you to do something which you were unwilling to do. But you must put the word of God and life in Christ above everything else. Okay, I know that's hard. I know that's very difficult for people to put up with. Some people, you know, are facing all kinds of things with job loss and everything lately because of certain issues. Listen, the word of the Lord must come first in all things. All right, it must. Okay, and if there's nothing in the word that says you don't have to do something, then that becomes your choice. You can do it. Okay. Um, have a wonderful night. It's so good to have you back. Now that it's, uh, it, they don't come because somebody can't drive when it's dark. And so now it's starting to get dark, so they have to go. But have a wonderful afternoon. Be blessed. Take care.
Anyway, it's good because now it's light enough where they yeah. can come for most of the class. Okay. Um, I've already said that, so we can go on. Do we have time for 128? We've got 10 minutes. I'm going to whip through it. We're going to do it. 128. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Okay. Now, oh, good. I thought we only had one more verse, and I was going to say we're not going to do that verse, but we have two more, so we're going to go ahead and do it. Okay. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Okay, Paul just spoke of their need to, fan, to stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He now adds to this by saying, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. The word translated as terrified is found only here in the Bible. It means to be terrified as if a horse when frightened. It is then a mind of terror and confusion. If you've ever seen a horse that's terrified, you know a mind of terror and confusion. We are not to be startled and terrified in such a way when facing our adversaries. Think of a horse that comes upon a rattlesnake. That's a very good example. They freak out. They're kicking up. They're just, they're wild, okay? And it can be the most tame horse in the world. But when they get close to that, they will just stamp on it and they'll just, they're crazy. Okay. The what? Spooked. Spooked. Okay, for those in Philippi, they had both the Judaizers and the pagans as their enemies, coming at it from all sides. These people came at them in hopes of terrifying them, probably to undermine their faith so that they would then follow them as the horse is eventually subdued and led away. But he has already told them to stand fast and to be striving together. In doing so, they will not be susceptible to being so terrified. Their ability to not be terrified in this way was to them, this is Paul's words, to be to them a proof of perdition. Their enemies were on the wrong path, and in their inability to shake the resolve of the faithful, it was to demonstrate that fact. Does everybody understand that? These people are coming against you because of your faith, and you stand fast in your faith. It is a proof to them that they are on the wrong path, and they are heading to perdition. It doesn't mean they're going there. They may change their mind, and they may actually see that your actions are so strong and so faithful that they want to know what you know, okay? But what he is saying is that you get these people that just, they think that they can... Uh, kowtow you and they can just force you to do anything and you stand fast and say I'm not going to do it it is a proof to them of perdition all right so their enemies were on the wrong path and in their inability to shake the resolve of the faithful it was to demonstrate that fact this would leave them with two choices they could repent of their ways and turn to the truth of Christ or they could continue down the path to perdition meaning condemnation and an eternal swim in the lake of fire Okay, um, people uh, especially, it's happening in our military now, but especially in the government for years have been on this course. They see the resolve of Christians, and unfortunately, it, it's so sad because even the Christians now are waffling where there's almost no sure footing anymore. There's almost no sure footing in churches, and so they can get people on their side that'll stick up for them and, and whatever perverse agenda they have. But if there is somebody that is absolutely a strong Christian that they cannot get to bend, it is to them a sign of their perdition. They're heading in the wrong path. And that was the way of the world in this nation 
but it's it's almost gone and now it's happening even in the military these people are are forcing out all of the christians they're forcing them to do things that they don't want to do and it's becoming very 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 quickly a woke force that is going to be entirely ineffective that's sad but that's the way that it's going right now and that's a perfect example of what paul is saying right here um it's proof of their perdition but it was also proof of the believer's state concerning salvation if you're willing to stand on your convictions if you're willing to stand on what you believe even to persecution even to imprisonment even to death that is a proof to people that you are willing because you honestly believe what you believe now once again that takes us back to what do you believe because lots of people are willing to die for their cause is it the right cause and that's something that every person has to determine in their own lives we are all responsible for our standing before God someday. I believe with all of my heart and with all of my soul that Jesus Christ is the answer to that, that condition that we are going to have to go through. I believe that. I believe that he is the only answer to that condition. And so that is why I read the Bible. That's why I teach the Bible. And that's why I continue to study the Bible. And on Monday morning when I'm typing my sermons or Monday afternoon or Monday evening whenever I'm doing it and I come to something that confirms my faith in the Lord or that proves an insight that I already believe about something else in the Bible I get excited I'll often send it to Sergio and say check this out and it might not mean the same thing to him because he hasn't been doing all of this study all day long that you know is in my head but if it confirms something that I'm already sure about I just get greatly excited about it. Anyway, um, if one stands fast, there must be something that they are standing fast on. If they were striving together for the sake of the gospel, it means that they were aware of the gospel. They understood its meaning and its ramifications, and they were able to keep it faithfully. These two things, the fear of perdition for those opposed to the gospel and the hope of salvation for those who are saved by the gospel, are tokens from God. The one will stand as a witness against the lost when they stand before him, and the other will stand as a witness for the saved when they come before him. The gospel is the token of condemnation for some and of salvation for others. It is like the pillar of cloud described by Moses in Exodus chapter 14. We're going to be really close to the end, so I'm going to have to get this quickly and then finish up. But Exodus chapter 14 and verse 20. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, think of those in perdition, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. It's working in two ways at the same time. That is what the gospel is doing between the unsaved and the saved life application. Don't be led astray by universalist teachings which say that everyone eventually goes to heaven. That is proven false right here and in numerous other verses of scripture. It is a heretical lie. Stand fast on the gospel which says that only those who come to Christ will be saved. And eventually even that will be scrubbed from social media. It's, it's just down the road one of these days, and it probably won't be long, all these uh, teachings that people have all over the world that stand fast on the gospel will no longer be available to the people of the world because of 
the truth because people do not want to abide in the truth and that's a very sad place to be but if it's the truth it's an important message to keep telling them heavenly father thank you for the chance to come into your presence thank you for the wonderful and sure word that we have thank you that it is self-confirming it is self-validating and it also has the gift of prophetic utterances so that we can say this was prophesied and it came to pass and so we know that you are there at the end also from the beginning lord we are so grateful to you for your precious word thank you for it thank you for what you have given us in this word and thank you above all for jesus christ our lord who is revealed in it thank you for jesus amen so paul mentions confidence which is what we're talking about 17 times Confidence. Oh my gosh. Yes, 17 times. I didn't know that. Now I put down sermon, so I've got to. Uh, I'm sorry, folks. I focused it on me instead of the church. Yes. And so it's all I'm, about Charlie. I'm, I'm going to back this thing. That. I pushed the wrong. I got.